Good morning. All right, well, that was a lot of information. I hope you're excited to fellowship together um, over the next month or so. So at this time, go ahead and stand with us, and we're going to sing this morning.
This morning, we have a call to worship from Psalms 147. It's verse 7 through 11. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. It makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse or the warrior, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Amen. We're going to sing a great hymn of the church, Be Thou My Vision. So let's continue to stand and continue to praise as we sing together. Be Thou My Vision. to me save that thou art thou my best thought by day or by night waking or sleeping thy presence my Jesus, my glory. 
I will love you 
Amen. Be seated. Okay, you may be seated. Amen. <laughs> um, let's join together as we remain in this, as we say, attitude or posture of, of worship uh, in heart and in spirit to our God. Let's enter into a time of prayer. And I just want to encourage you, as always, to come before God open fully receptive to what it is that he wants to speak to our hearts um, as we enter into this time of prayer. And a lot of times it's helpful to have moments of silence in this prayer time because it helps us to not just speak to God, but helps us to listen. And so when we have those silent moments, that's the goal, that we would be open and receptive to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to us or continuing to speak to us here in this moment. So let's join together in prayer. Holy God, we pause in this moment as we open up ourselves to you, Lord. God, we intentionally turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look to you in this moment. God, as we sing these songs that so clearly have a a theme, God, we're reminded that it's so easy for us to have our own ideas of what it looks like to follow you. And we have our own ideas as to what are the best things for us. And God, it's really easy to feel as though we have it all figured out. And sometimes... Most of the time, all of the time, God, it's appropriate for us to to just pause and to just stop right where we are and to open up ourselves to ask you, God, to help us know what we ought to do from the big things all the way down to the little things. God, it is good to turn to you in everything and to seek your vision, to seek your will, to seek your way. Because when we do that, we find that your way is the best way. It's better than anything we could have ever imagined or planned for ourselves. And so God, in this moment, may we just intentionally fix our eyes upon you as we seek to receive your truth, as we seek to receive your vision, as we seek to love others as you love them, God, we turn to you to help us know how to best love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Holy Spirit, we we submit ourselves to you before 
we take the next step. God, help us as a collective body, as the body of Christ, help us to have your vision. I'm reminded, God, of of the year 2020, and a lot of people really capitalized on that cliche, vision 2020. We're looking for 2020 vision, and, and lots of leaders, lots of businesses, corporations, churches included. God, we all had a plan we had a game plan. We were going to capitalize on this, on this cliche statement, and, and we were going to run with it. And God, we were reminded of just how quickly things can fall apart. We were reminded during 2020 of just how quickly things can go in a completely different direction, one that we could have never prepared for. And God, we know, we trust that that living in a broken, fallen, sin-filled world, that these things happen. It doesn't mean, God, necessarily that you author or ordain them, but God, we saw you working in the midst, and it was just a good reminder, a healthy reminder for us to look to you to be our vision, to look to you to show us what we ought to do. And so, We receive that reminder once again. God, would you just continue to go before us? Would you be with us, God? Help us to see you. Help us to follow your discernment, your wisdom, God, in all things. We humble ourselves, and we wait for you. And we look to you. God, we just pray for those this morning who are not able to be here today. Maybe some who are watching from home. God, we just pray that, that you would be with those who, who are dealing with sickness. God, be with those who are continuing to recover from various things. God, we pray that you would be with those who who just need to feel your peace, your calm, your presence. Be with those, Lord, who are feeling weak and weary today. Draw near to all of those, all of us who open ourselves up to you, God, and give us your strength. God, in a few moments as we open up your word, Holy Spirit, we pray, we invite you to come to teach us, to guide us, to convict us when necessary. God, we just pray that we would hear your word for your people today. God, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, in just a few moments, I'm going to uh, welcome our preacher for the day. Uh, But first, uh, Adam, I'm going to ask Adam to come. I've been asked to ask Adam to come, I should say. And Adam uh, serves as our church board secretary, and he's going to share something with us. All right, don't worry, I'm not preaching. That's going to be Nikki. 
So I know we're looking forward to that. We don't want to waste too much time. But we do want to spend a moment to acknowledge a very important member of our congregation. I'll see if I can get him to come up here. If not, maybe I'll just kind of fling it back there. I don't, oh, I'm not sure. But um, Bo is coming up on, I think, two years of volunteer activity here. I believe his official title is, go ahead and come on up here. Um, his official title is our campus, no, our online pastor. Um, but I know he volunteers in many different ways, as we know. We see him up here playing drums, and he's back there a lot. And I know he's also helped a lot with the garden. So we all want to say thank you to Bo. He does all of this on a volunteer basis while working a full-time job. So we want to thank him for his service and for his uh, leadership here and for, of course, just the humility of which he, of course, does everything around here. So thank you very much, and we will give. Woo! Well, I shared with you all last week, or for those of you who may have missed it, um, and you're going to feel like you missed something kind of big, last week we presented Nikki Whitney with her first local license. She is now a locally licensed uh, preacher here in our local church, so she is able to, to come and share the word with us, and she's going to do that. So Nikki, I'm going to invite you to come. Give her a warm welcome, because um, I'm very excited, and I want her to know that we've been praying for her and receive her warmly. So I'm going to hand it over to you, sister. Oh, there's a Bible up here. I don't like it. Can you guys hear me? Oh, hello. Good morning. My cats are joining me in spirit and in fur, so welcome them as well. I've just gotten used to it. They, where I go, they go. We're kind of a package deal. So uh, I actually didn't set out to become a preacher, believe it or not. But I think a lot of us know, and we're going to talk about this a little bit today, a lot of times God decides to do things in ways that are very unexpected. So I wrote this little thing that I wanted to share with you guys before we get into the Word, just to give you an idea of my heart and the posture that I'm taking as I come to bring the Word to you this morning. It's an honor and it's a privilege to be trusted to teach the Word of God. And I don't take that lightly. There are some people who are uncomfortable, pretty much even against the idea of me being here because I'm a woman. And I have come to feel that they're a little bit right. Not because I'm a woman, but because I am an imperfect person. So I feel that I am unworthy of this task. And it's only by the grace of God that I can stand here. So I don't, I'll say again, take this lightly, but I'm humbled by the trust that you placed in me this morning. And I will give God all of the glory. If I fail today and everything I say makes zero sense, is redundant or offends you, <laughs> May God be glorified in my humiliation, because without him, that would always be my result. If I do well and my words inspire you, convict you, or light a fire in your soul, may God be glorified in the success, for it is only by his spirit that this could happen. I stand before you today by faith in the word that says that his power is made perfect in weakness. So this morning, it's my weakness. 
And I have nothing to offer you that I did not receive freely from him. I'm gonna pray, but I also just wanna acknowledge that God has a sense of humor, you guys. And if you didn't know, I do think that I should let you guys in on the joke that it's a little bit funny that God brought a girl, a Pentecostal girl from Texas, and I'm standing in a Nazarene pulpit this morning. So that's kind of funny. You can laugh. It's okay. Don't be nervous. It's okay. I'm not going to like pray in tongues or anything. Okay, I'm going to pray. I know we've been doing a lot of praying, but we're just going to keep praying. More prayer. It's good. You can never have too much prayer but I'm going to keep it quick. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I am humbled, and I just ask that you would come and fill this place, that you would speak to each of us, our hearts. God, it's not me that we want to hear from. Please know, (laughs) it's you. That's why we come. It's why we gather. I ask, Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts to receive? And I believe that you've already been doing that, tilling the soil in our hearts that we could receive the seed of the word so that it will grow and hopefully eventually bear fruit. And God, I ask that if there's anything that you want to say or do, that you would just be free in this place. If you want me to throw my notes in the trash, I will do it. Some of you guys got a little nervous. I'm not going to do that, but I will if you want me to. God, have your way, and whatever you do, don't let me get in the way. Amen. Have you guys ever been looking everywhere for something? A remote, your phone, your keys, and you can't find it, and then when you do find it, you realize it was right in front of your face the entire time. Just me? I don't know. I do that all the time. If there's someone around, you might even announce embarrassed, embarrassedly. Is that a word? Embarrassed? I'm blind. I say that all the time. It's been sitting there. I've probably seen it several times. I know I've checked this spot, but there it is. Just plain as day. There's actually a name for that, in case you didn't know. It's called inattention blindness. And Harvard University did a study a few years ago on this. They got a bunch of students together, and they showed them a video. And in the video, pretty basic, there's some people passing a basketball back and forth. And they asked the participants to count the number of times that the basketball is being passed. Very straightforward. The catch is that in the middle of the video, this guy, or girl, I don't know, comes out in a gorilla costume, like, full-blown gorilla costume, walks into the middle of the people passing the basketball, thumps its chest, like gorillas do, and then just walks right out. Just plain as day, large as life, gorilla person. But more than half of the participants did not see the gorilla at all. The researcher said, this experiment reveals two things. We are missing a lot of what goes on around us, and we have no idea that we are missing so much. And it got us thinking that many other intuitive beliefs that we have about our own minds might be just as wrong. Interesting. So today in our passage, we are going to be reading or talking, 
or both, about a man who was literally blind. Not inattentive blind, he was blind. His eyes did not work. But before we go into the passage, I just want to give you a little context. Not too much, because we were in John last week. I think Pastor Nicole did a really good job giving you an idea of how John is setting up stories. Um, She did mention that he uses seeing as a metaphor for belief. So we're going to see that in the story. It's going to be a really strong theme as well. Um, I won't spend too much time on this. I know you guys probably know already about the Gospel of John. John likes to be different. He's unique. He doesn't follow the pattern of the Synoptic Gospels. He came, the Gospel of John came up a lot later, and so most scholars think that John had some specific details and stories that he wanted to include that were not included in the other accounts. So seemingly he had a reason why he thought these were important to make sure that these ended up in the accounts. So I think what we need to know as we're going into John, that this is not just another account of Jesus' life and ministry. Those already existed in triplicate. So we didn't need another one of those. John has a completely different motive and reason, and the way he's approaching his gospel is just, you need to just, we have to read John's gospel a little different than we would the other gospels. Looking for what is it that he's trying to say and why is this important One of the things that John does that's a common theme is that he portrays Jesus as a disruptor. So I'm going to give you four examples in the earlier chapters of John before our passage of important Jewish traditions that John portrays, and he tells us the story of Jesus coming in and disrupting these traditions. He, He just shows up, kind of rocks the boat. Sometimes he brings balance. Sometimes he just totally makes things crazy. So the first one is the wedding at Cana. So... I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. Maybe you're not as much of a nerd as I am. But when Jesus makes the wine at the wedding at Cana, he uses purification jars. Seems like a really random and unnecessary detail to include because, I mean, they're jars. Who cares? He's making wine. He's telling a story. But those purification jars are actually really significant because they're part of a Jewish tradition, the purification rite. I'm not going to go into that because it would be a totally different sermon, But just know that when Jesus went and made wine in purification jars, he was making a statement about a Jewish tradition. He does the same thing with the Sabbath, the Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So that happens. And then that brings us to our passage, which is in John chapter 9. So I have good news and bad news. The bad news is I'm going to be preaching from the entire chapter of John 9. Partially because I don't really like taking stuff out of context, and this passage is unique because it takes up the entire chapter. It opens at the beginning of the chapter, opens the story, and the end of the chapter concludes the story. So I really wrestled with how to pull something out of the passage that would work, but I just felt like it would be better for us to look at the whole thing in context. So some of you were hoping for a shorter sermon today. I am sorry to break it to you, but that's probably not going to happen. But it's going to be good. You won't even notice, I promise. It's fine. It's a great story. I am such a Bible nerd, but I've been reading this story over and over for weeks, and I just love it. John is a masterful storyteller, so I hope that you can appreciate that with me this morning. So the good news is, though, that I am not going to make you stand for the reading because it is 41 verses long. You're welcome. I'm also not going to read it all at once, partially because I think if I read 41 verses, your eyes are going to glaze over and you're going to miss stuff. So we're going to break it up into sections. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, she's already coming in and changing. We always stand for the reading. What is she doing? Just 
I will say, allow me, if you would, to disrupt your tradition this morning. See what I did there? Okay. All right. The main thing I want you to know before we jump right in is that I have been studying this passage and praying about what God would say to us for weeks. And I really believe that he has something to say to each and every one of us today. I believe that. And I prayed and I prayed with Gabe, like, God, if I'm going to preach, I need you to speak, to say something meaningful. I don't want to just get up there and say things that we've all heard and we all already know. What is the point of that? I want you to speak. And so I believe that's what he's going to do, and I have faith that that's what he's going to do this morning. Amen? All right, so the first section I'm going to read to you in the New Revised Standard Version, or the NRSV, it's the first 12 verses. So starting in verse 1, as he, Jesus, walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed, and he came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am he. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. (laughs) So this is an interesting story, right? Kind of gross, like spits on the dirt and puts it on. It's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to go wash in the pool of Siloam. You just put mud on my face, dude, with spit in it. Gross. Maybe he did that to make sure that he was going to take a bath. I don't know. So the main thing is, I want to address something first. Before we answer the questions, really briefly, I ended up deciding not to use the NIV this morning, and I just wanted to let you guys know, because I feel like this is important, that if you guys are the kind of people, any of you, who only read the same translation all the time, I would really encourage you to just branch out a little bit. Like, just read some other translations, pull up some comparisons, little Bible app on your phone has a nice little compare feature, which is really fun. Um, Translations are different, and just by definition, they are a form of interpretation. The translators do have to make some judgments on what the author's trying to communicate. So some of those decisions have been made before you even read it. So that's why I think it's great to kind of see what different people are saying. I'm going to give you an example of this and why we're reading The NRSV, which is, I'll admit, a little bit more clunky than the NIV when you read it, especially out loud. Um, In the NIV, in verse 3, when Jesus replies to the disciples, neither this man nor his parents sinned, they break that up into two sentences, and it's neither this man nor his parents sinned, period. This happened so that the works of God might be revealed in him. So one of my commentaries pointed this out, and then I couldn't let it go. This happened, the phrase this happened, doesn't actually show up in the original Greek. 
Now, the reason that the translators use this, luckily I'm taking a Greek class right now, so I was able to look into this. There is a Greek conjunction, hina, if you really wanted to know. probably didn't, but you're welcome. Um, it has a bunch of different meanings, right? It's called the semantic range. If I say, it's really cool in here, you're super cool. I just use that word two totally different ways, but you, being English speakers, knew what I meant both times. When we say something, and especially when we're reading something in an ancient language, in Greek, sometimes the translators are wrestling which meaning do they mean when they use this word. So they have to kind of figure that out. Some translators have taken this word to mean, which it can sometimes mean, that there is some kind of causation implied. Other translators, and I will say my Greek professor agreed with me on this, have taken more of, because it is kind of vague, it's a, it's a conjunction, it's not a huge word that has a lot of meaning, that it's meant to connect these ideas. So I kind of like the NRSV, it says he was born so that, but even that kind of implies cause, when really what Jesus is communicating, if you look at the context of what he's saying and what he goes on to do, he's communicating a result rather than a cause. So that's the only thing that you need to remember, result rather than cause. The man was born blind. They're asking what was the cause, and Jesus redirects and says, we're not going to talk about the cause, but what I am going to do is show you the result, which is that God's works are going to be made known. So he's showing that we're not, we don't know the cause. We don't know all the answers. Jesus didn't come to bring us all the answers. But what he did do is he brought a result that was better for us. So I'm just going to throw that out there. If you like the NIV, I also really do like it. I'm not hating on it. But just sometimes it's good to like, check other translations and see what is being said and, and just kind of notice those differences because they can have important implications. The main reason I wanted to address that is because I think that's a famous verse that people quote a lot and I think it's often misunderstood. So let's move on. Um, so what's happening? Why is Jesus spitting on this guy's face? <laughs> the ancients actually believed that saliva had healing properties and Maybe Dr. Doug knew this, but if you, I actually Googled this, and there is some truth to that. So if you want a fun little science lesson later, you can go Google that. It's very fascinating. But for the point of this story, the point is really that Jesus is demonstrating an intent to heal. Because it was a common held belief that saliva had held healing properties, when Jesus spit into the dirt, anyone who saw that or heard that story later would understand that he was communicating by his action, I am going to heal this man. And he put that spit on his eyes. So some of the translations actually even translate that mud as ointment. So it's like Jesus was making a medicine for his eyes. <laughs> that's not how his eyes were healed, but that's just to communicate an intent. That's actually important because there can be no mistake. There is no loophole. He did what he meant to do, and he meant what he did. That's going to be really important when the Pharisees get involved in our next section which we are going to read now, which is thir verse 13 through 23. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had, sorry, who had formerly been blind. I'm not a fan of reading the NRSV out loud. Um, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, well, what do you say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. He said, he's a prophet. 
They didn't like that. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is your, this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Okay, that was a lot. The main thing that we need to know for this part of the story is that the Pharisees are using what's called Mishnah. It's an oral interpretation of the law. So some of you maybe have read the Old Testament and you're like, I don't remember anything about mud being in there. Why is this a big deal? This is why. Mishnah is an oral interpretation of the law. It's a verbal thing that was passed down. It's now in a written form so we can read it, but back then it was probably just in an oral form. It's really their way of trying to protect against heresy. And in honesty, we do this too. Like we have creeds, right? Those creeds are not scripture. They're based on scripture. And we've passed those down as tradition. And we do view those creeds as a way to protect against heresy. And there's things in the creeds that are our interpretation of what scripture is communicating. So that's kind of what the Pharisees are trying to do here. The problem is that if you start taking it way too seriously, it creates issues, especially in this case. So we'll see that. The Misha does include rules outlining what is appropriate or not appropriate for Sabbath behavior. One of the rules is combining a liquid and a solid to make a paste is forbidden. I want to point out, though, that this rule is actually given in the context of cooking, so I think that's significant. But if you are interpreting these rules super rigidly, you could maybe come to the conclusion that Jesus is violating the Sabbath. The other thing is, it says that because he made mud and opened his eyes, right? It says that in verse 14. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the mud was an issue and the opening of the eyes was an issue. Two separate issues. The Mishnah also forbids creative acts. Because God created the earth and then on the seventh day rested, that is supposed to be a rest from creative acts. So Jesus, okay, picks up some dirt, it's very reminiscent of Genesis when God creates man. He uses it to make mud, puts it on this guy's eyes, and then keeping in mind, he can't just heal the eyes. Okay, they never worked to begin with. He was born blind. So Jesus does a creative miracle to restore these eyes to a state that they've actually never been in before. So we can't even use the word restore. He gave this guy new eyes. So it's viewed as a creative miracle. Okay, so I could say more on the Sabbath, but that would be a really different sermon. And Nicole preached a really good sermon on the Sabbath really recently, so go back and listen if you don't remember, or if you weren't here. But I'll just sum it up with this really great quote that I loved. This is a quote from Clarence Haynes Jr. of Crossway. He said, the letter of the law is really about you doing everything. Okay, the spirit of the law is about God doing everything through you. Love that. Okay, so the questions that this section really raised for me was, why are they bringing this man to the Pharisees? What's their motivation for doing that? Are they tattling on Jesus? Is it because of he made mud on the Sabbath? What's actually going on? 
When I read this story, I, feel, I felt like there was something missing from the puzzle. If you're just doing a surface-level reading without any further research, it feels off. Like, what am I missing here? Is this really all about the Sabbath being violated? Because we also need to keep in mind that this is not the first time that Jesus has challenged the Sabbath in the Gospel of John. In fact, Jesus and the Pharisees have already had public debates about the Sabbath. So I struggled to believe that that's John's primary motivation in telling this story. If, he, if it was, it would be redundant because he's already addressed this. So I, that's part of why I brought up earlier that this is not just an account of Jesus' ministry. John is actually trying to communicate specific things. So if we've already kind of talked about the Sabbath, I think there must be another reason why he's telling us this story. Okay, the other thing that's really weird that you may have noticed as well is like, why is no one happy? Right? Did anyone notice that? That's, that's weird. Even other gospel accounts tell stories, even healings that were performed on the Sabbath, and people praised God. There were other accounts where people were interrogated or they ended up on the bad side of the religious leaders, but still people praised God. Even this man's parents don't seem happy. What is up with that? Not only are they not happy, they're afraid. That's a weird reaction. They're afraid enough that they would even pass the buck to their own son. Think about that. He's of age, ask him. Don't ask us. But it says that they're afraid of being cast out of the synagogue, okay? Here's the thing you need to know about the synagogue. It's the religious, cultural center for ancient Jewish life. And there's no other place for you to go if you get cast out. It's not like, oh my gosh, these people don't like me. I'm going to go to the Baptist synagogue down the street. No, they didn't have that. <laughs> if you get cast out, you're out. Like, you are now alienated from your community. So it's a legitimate concern that they have, but it is weird to me that they're like, we don't want to get cast out. Cast our son out. He's used to it. He's been a beggar his whole life. <laughs> what? What is happening? Why? I just thought that was super weird. Okay, I will say that I feel like the picture does get clearer as we go, so we're just going to keep moving and carry our questions with us. Section 3 is verse 24 through 34. I personally love this interchange between the healed man and the Pharisees because I think it's hilarious. So I hope you enjoy it as well. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him. I think that's a hilarious word. It really, it means they insulted him. <laughs> saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. I just, I, this is not in my notes, but I got to interject here that it's a little bit funny because there's other parts in the story where they're like, he's not the Messiah because he's not from Bethlehem. Oh, I thought you didn't know where he came from. Weird. Apparently they did know where he came from. They just change their story, whatever works for them, you know what I mean? But the man answered, this is the great answer. He says, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Wow, it seems like this guy has a little more faith in God's power than they do. Interesting. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. So that they drove him out. In other translations, it says they cast him out. So exactly what the parents feared for themselves does end up being the result for their son. They cast him out. They want him to deny Jesus, but he refuses to do it, so they threw him out. Unlike his parents and other people in the story, he refuses to pass the buck. He doesn't look for an excuse. He doesn't cop out. He owns what he knows to be true. What he experienced, this was God. And that begs the question, why do the Pharisees, and I should say some, right? Because earlier I pointed out they were divided. Why do some of the Pharisees resist this so much? Keep in mind, we're talking about a minor infraction of Sabbath rules. That feels very extreme. Are they just being party poopers? I think it's easy for us to read the Bible and just dismiss the Pharisees as killjoys because that's what they're like always doing. But then we would miss the obvious questions that the story expects to raise for us because it's not just the Pharisees who are struggling with this healing. It's everybody. Even the disciples were like, wait, what? <laughs> you don't mean this guy wasn't a sinner? Like, isn't that why he's blind? Okay, section four, verse 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he, fa- when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and that those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. If I had a mic, I would drop it. It's pretty dramatic. It's a very dramatic thing to say. And I actually love John's dramatic flair. That that's how he ends the story, leaving those words hanging in the air. He doesn't bother to let you know how the Pharisees responded, and I'm sure they did. He doesn't tell you what happened next. He just lets those words hang. I think that's significant. Keep in mind, as we're looking at this section, it's a little kind of a weird interchange. But remember that this guy's never actually seen Jesus. Jesus put mud on his eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam, and then his eyes were healed. So he heard Jesus and the disciples talking. He knew that it was Jesus who healed him because he identifies him, but he doesn't know what he looks like. So when Jesus shows up and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's like, where is he? (laughs) I actually love how the message words his response. Jesus' response to that question, show me who the Son of Man is so that I may believe in him, as don't you recognize my voice? Because that's all he knew. But as soon as he does recognize him, it says that he worships him. 
That's all it took. John's clearly making a contrast here between this guy and not just the Pharisees, but like literally everybody else. And I'm sure you guys know this, but in case you didn't, when he says, do you believe in the son of man? Jesus is making a messianic claim. That's a, a title that's used in the book of Daniel to identify the Messiah, son of man. Jesus uses it a lot. But so when he says, do you believe in the son of man? He's asking this guy, do you believe that I'm the Messiah? He, he waited until he'd already been cast out, right? So it's, it's not my fault that he got cast out of the synagogue because he believed I was the Messiah. He was already cast out. But he does come and reveal himself to the man. He doesn't just leave him hanging. So I would say at first glance, you might think that this story is about spiritual blindness. In fact, most of your Bibles are going to use that as your section title. You might think it's about legalism because that's a classic Pharisee trope. Or you might even think it's just a story about Jesus doing what he do. He healed people. Yeah, he does that all the time. Those are all part of the story, but those are actually minor themes, I think, supporting what appears to be the main theme. And to be honest, I didn't see it at first. And when I did, I felt a little, well, blind. Yeah, I went there. This passage is clearly about sin, I know, your favorite topic. (laughs) When I got there in my studies, I was like, really, this is my first sermon? Come on, man, couldn't you give me something better than that? No, I'm just kidding. But the passage is about sin. Think about it. It opens with a conversation about sin, and it ends with Jesus making a declaration about sin, and everything in between is laced with insinuation. The Pharisees even try to call Jesus a sinner, And when they throw the man out, they insult him. My favorite version of this insult is actually from the NIV. They say, you were steeped in sin since birth. Keep that in your back pocket. It's a fun little insight. You were steeped like a cup of tea. I just think that's hilarious. Like, where did they come up with that wording? Anyways, once you see this theme of sin, you really can't unsee it. It's everywhere. I think that at first glance, it was far too easy to brush past the disciples' first question. It's like, well, that's a stupid thing to say, disciples. But I think that's a mistake. When the Pharisees call this man sinful, that insult that I just read to you, it literally in Greek means you were born in sin. And I looked up that word, and it actually can also mean you were conceived in sin. So they were insulting him, basically calling him illegitimate. Whether or not the blind man actually was a product of sin, the narrative is clear that this was a commonly held belief, not just in a general sense, but regarding this man specifically. Like, people knew him, and they believed. The disciples were like, hey, let's make random conversation. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? Like, that's what they come up with. This is just a common held belief. I think that's really important that might actually explain why the parents were so afraid of the religious leaders and being cast out of the synagogue. How many strikes do you get? John does emphasize this as significant by repeatedly mentioning that the man wasn't just blind, he was born blind. And every time they say that he was blind, he was born blind. The man even says in his testimony that no one has ever heard of someone healing a man born blind. However, there are records, even in Jewish history, of blind people being healed. So he's specifically saying something about the fact that he was born blind. So let's go back to the beginning. Okay, don't worry, I'll be fast. 
The disciples ask what they consider to be an innocuous question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The way the question's worded conveys their assumption that one or the other is definitely the case. They did not expect Jesus's reaction. We might actually, if we think about it, understand the human tendency to associate misfortune with punishment for bad behavior and good things as some kind of reward for doing the right thing, right? What goes around comes around. But in reality, we're actually talking about something much bigger and more deeply ingrained in this society. This is a big part of their belief system. In my Pentateuch class, we learned about this. It is called retribution dogma. It's a mouthful. It's the belief based on some parts of the law and the prophets that seem to imply such cause and effect, like you reap what you sow. That's a quote from the law. If you sin, God will punish you, but if you're righteous, God will bless you. The problem is that there are books like Job and others that clearly contradict and correct this line of thinking. Bringing balance. I guess the Pharisees and the disciples forgot about those books. The point is that this was strongly believed and taught by the religious leaders in Jesus' day. So what Jesus does is amazing. He corrects the disciples directly and simply like a rabbi. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to do what John has been showing us throughout his entire gospel. He's going to disrupt this way of thinking. He's going to just turn over this entire tradition. Stop for a minute and think about the implications of Jesus healing a man born blind, assuming that everyone believed that his blindness was some kind of punishment that was deserved. Suddenly, it makes so much sense why the Pharisees were so agitated. They had a lot to lose. In fact, their religious authority and reputations were on the line. If we know anything about the Pharisees from the gospel writers, it's that their religious authority and reputations were absolutely everything to them. It also makes sense why the people weren't celebrating. They were confused. The Pharisees have been teaching them this their whole life. It suggests a likely motive for them bringing the man before the Pharisees. It's possible that they were saying, can you explain this? Think about it. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have been teaching these people their entire lives. If they do what is wrong, they or their children are going to end up like this blind man. And... They're probably even using real people like this blind man as an illustration and a cautionary tale. They've also been flaunting their own wealth and privilege under the Roman Empire as a blessing from God for their good deeds. That's affirming their superior righteousness above everybody else. See, if you were righteous, you could have what we have. But because you're a sinner, that's why you're like that. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Oh, really? You think that's what this is? He undermines that entire system. He undermines their perceived righteousness, and he undermines the perceived unrighteousness of the dirty, filthy masses. In one little healing. He's a master, and I believe that he's very intentional with everything that he does. So they've been teaching this, the people are believing this, and yet, here's this man. 
He was born blind, and now he's clearly healed by the power of God. Why would God do that if this was some kind of punishment for his sin? Jesus not only disrupts their dogma, but beautifully illustrates the gospel. It's as if by his actions he's saying, I have come to remove the punishment for sin. And the Pharisees are mad. They're offended. They don't want the punishment for sin removed or discredited. Why? Because in this system, they're at the top. In the new system that Jesus is ushering in, they no longer will be. The first will be last after all, and those who see are going to become blind. The Pharisees are saying, we have finally found a way to make the system work for us. We don't want a new system. They're not thinking about the other people who are at a disadvantage. But don't we do that too? It's hard for us to let go of things that benefit us, the things that are comfortable, even when other people are uncomfortable. When other people are at a disadvantage, it's harder for us to care about that because we're doing great. Why do we need to change? This system is good. Now we can see all the interlaced tension in the text, the reason for so much resistance and confusion. What is God doing? This is not what they expected. And friends... Is it okay for us to acknowledge that sometimes, a lot of time actually, God does what we do not expect him to do? Take a drink. Dramatic pause. All right. Okay. What does this have to do with us? We've talked about it a little bit, but I'm going to really bring it home for you. (laughs) Remember inattention blindness? Okay, the disciples are so distracted by this man or his parents' potential sin that they completely miss the point. They miss the obvious gorilla suit right in the middle, like right in front of their faces, and they're just like, basketball. Right? I love how the message words Jesus' response to their question in verse 3. He says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Don't we also do that? We ask the wrong questions. We get distracted. We forget to look for what God can do. And I would add that Jesus, what he goes on to say is that while it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Jesus invites them not just to look for what God can do, but to look for ways that they can partner with what God is doing. We must do the work of him who sent us. But sin is distracting, especially other people's sin. It's annoying, it's inconvenient, and a lot of times it hurts. It hurts us. There's nothing more distracting than our own pain. But it's not just that. Sometimes it's just someone's failure. It might not even be sinful. They're flaws, things we just really don't like or we don't agree with. can be very distracting. But to really bring it home, are we blind to our own sin? It is Lent, 
After all, a season of reflecting on our sin as we move toward the cross and ultimately the power, the resurrection, and the empty tomb. So really, I'd be remiss not to ask, are we so attached to our own righteousness, our own dogmas, our pride or reputation or authority, the things that we have built, that we are actually blind? Are we resisting what God is trying to do in our midst? And in doing so, are we resisting God? So what do we do? Are you bracing yourself for some kind of intense call to action? It's actually really simple. Not easy, but simple. All you have to do is humble yourself. That's it. We need to just admit that we're blind. Admit that we need Jesus to open our eyes, and his spirit will do the rest. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would not have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. It's as if he's saying, here's the deal. Blindness, no problem. I can deal with that. I literally just healed this guy's eyes. They never worked. Did you see that? But if you don't even admit that you're blind, if you're in denial, if you don't want my help, Nothing I can do. Your sin will remain. Friends, that is a scary place to be. In a sad place. It's not where we belong. <clears throat> Humbling ourselves, admitting that we're not enough, that we are fundamentally missing something, is really hard. As is letting go of long-held dogmas and traditions and the things that we have built. But I want to pose a question. What do we really have to lose? That's something we have to think about. The truth is the Pharisees felt like they had a lot to lose. But I would argue they had no idea what they were missing out on. Not a great exchange <laughs> that they said, nope. I consider it actually quite fitting to quote a former Pharisee on this. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I'm sure you guessed it. The apostle Paul, who was also once blind and God opened his eyes so that he could choose Jesus that was from Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. I read it in the ESV, in case you're curious. But this, friends, is something that we all have to consider for ourselves. I can't answer that for you. Is he worth it? Maybe you're thinking, this is a little depressing. Don't worry, I saved the best for last. The most beautiful thing about this story that is really easy to miss is at the beginning Here's this blind man sitting there, completely incapable of seeing Jesus. How could he recognize the Messiah right in front of him when he can't even see? Do not let it be lost on you that the text clearly says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. He sees us. Even when we can't see 
Jesus sees us. Even though we are blind and we're likely missing what God's trying to do right in front of us, he sees us. All we have to do this morning is humble ourselves before a loving, creative, miracle-working God, the one who opens the eyes of the blind. Just admit that you are blind and watch what God does, pun intended. God isn't here to beat us over the head for our failures, and I'm not here for that either. The reality of the cross is that Jesus removed the punishment for sin, your sin and mine. He does the work, all of it. All we have to do is let him. That's it. It's so simple. Remember this quote from earlier. The letter of the law is really about you doing everything. The spirit of the law is about God doing everything through you. I'm going to pray. I'll invite the praise team to come up. We do have a video that I'm going to play, which I'll explain. But while they're getting ready, I want to just tell you, it feels necessary to acknowledge that even though I'm standing here above you, I am walking alongside you. I am right there with you. As I've been studying this passage, the Lord has been convicting my heart. And when we listen to this song on the video, and then the praise team's going to sing a song that we can really join in and respond. But as we listen to this song on the video, I'm going to be sitting there right there with you, praying and opening my hands and my heart before God. Because I know that there are things that I'm missing. So when I pray this prayer, I want you to know that it's a genuine, honest prayer. I can pray for myself. And I can hope that you guys will be able to pray for yourselves because it's between you and God. So what I would like you to do, if you're open to it, as we play the video, open your hands. It's just a posture of being receptive. And just talk to God. In your heart, with your words, whatever that looks like for us to tell God, I'm struggling, this is hard, can you help me? Help me to want this. If I'm blind, I don't even know I'm blind. So how, how am I going to? I need you to show me. And I need you to open my eyes. I'll pray. Jesus, I humble myself before you today. I have been so blind. I'm so sorry. I've been asking the wrong questions. I've been missing the point. I haven't looked for the ways that you can move or how you might want me to partner with you in your work. I haven't always been willing to acknowledge the areas where I am still sinning. The heart issues that I carry around buried under a religious facade. Bitterness. Pride, jealousy, selfishness, not loving my brothers and sisters the way that you taught me to. Not surrendering everything I have to you. Please, Jesus, open my eyes. I want to see you. I 
heart to worship you. I want to see your glory. Help us to see. Amen. You can play the video. Turn the lights off. Let's all stand this morning. We're going to sing a similar message to that. Lord, I need you more. Let's sing together. I need you more. More than yesterday, I need you more. More than words could ever say, I need you I need you, Lord, more than yesterday, I need you, Lord, more than words could ever say, I need you more than ever before, I need you, Lord, I need you, Lord. 
more than the air I breathe, more than the song I sing, more than the next heartbeat, more than anything, and Lord, as time goes by, I'll be by your side, cause I never want to go back to my old life, I need you more, more than yesterday, I need you more, more than words could ever say, I need you more than ever before, I need you, Lord, I need you, Lord. More than the air, let's sing that. More than the air I breathe, more than the song I sing, more than the next heartbeat, more than anything. And Lord, as time goes by, I'll be by your side, because I never want to go back to my old life. I need you more, more than yesterday, I need you more, more than words could ever say, I need you more, than ever before, I need you, Lord, I need you, Lord. read this benediction over you from 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. You are dismissed.